Hello, welcome again to the Beatles Books podcast with me, Joe Wisby. You can find me on Instagram with the account at BooksBeatles, where I'm cataloguing my collection of Beatles books. My guest today is author and sociologist Candy Leonard. She joins me to discuss her 2014 book, Beatleness. Based on hundreds of hours of interviews with first-generation fans, this book allows readers to experience what it was like to be a Beatle obsessive during those transformative 60s days. Candy Leonard, hello and welcome to the Beatles Books podcast. How are you? I'm great. Thanks for having me on. I really appreciate it. I'm going to start in probably quite a, an obvious place. You're here to talk about your book, Beatleness, and I was just hoping to get a, a rough idea of what the, the initial inspiration behind your writing and collating of this book was. Um, did you feel that Beatle fans didn't kind of have a, enough of a voice in Beatle literature? I definitely thought that, and um, I think that's somewhat less true now than it was when I wrote Beatleness. But um, at the time, the fan voice was really nowhere to be heard or read in in the thousands of books that are out there. Um, but more than that, the female voice was also absent. So when you think about the Beatles phenomenon as a whole and the fact that there were these thousands of books and the f- voice of the female of, of female observers, writers, and fans were absent, there's kind of a weird irony in that because the, the, the phenomenon itself was created by female fans, right? I had thought about writing a book about the Beatles for many, many years. Um, in fact, I was recently reading some of my old journals and I'm writing sort of like working out some of the thoughts and ideas about what I wanted to do like, you know, 20 plus years ago. Um, so it, it was a long time coming. But yeah, I, it was a calling. I mean, I, I, you know, as I say in the preface, I had a sense at the time, um, even though I was quite young, that I was witnessing something extraordinary and that it had not been documented. So, you know, anyway, fast forward to 20, I guess it was the end of 2012. I realized that we're coming up on the 50th anniversary and that I want it, you know, that became kind of a goal to, to have it out by then to, you know, so I could, to be part of that conversation that was mm. going to happen. And again, to bring the a female voice and the fan voice, which had not been there. The other motivation was, you know, we all, one of the phrases that's often used is the Beatles changed everything. The Beatles changed everything. So I wanted to kind of look at that, you know, and well, what did they change exactly? And how did they do that? And so that was also part of the, motivation. And I believed that talking to fans would shed light on that whole notion of how, of what changed and how. I think um, so true what you said there, particularly about the female perspective. Um, you know, uh, just looking at the books that I've got on my shelf, which are many, as, 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 as you know, uh, yeah, there's a, a big void there, which has, 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 filled up a little bit since your book came out but um yeah I think it's uh, it's essential that we hear a lot a lot more of that going forward um I wanted to talk about the kind of obvious starting place of your book and of everything 
uh, as, as certainly as far as, as the US is concerned and the Beatles. And that's uh, that, that night in February in 1964 when the Beatles first appeared on the Ed Sullivan show that kind of received wisdom that I've read, speaking as someone that obviously is from A, a different country and B, a different generation, uh, is that the Beatles' arrival coincided with this general period of mourning that the US had undertaken because of the assassination of President Kennedy just a few months previous. You know, this this you know young guy with a young family, etc. you know, hideous tragedy. Um, and the Beatles kind of came along and just solved everything. Um, I was curious to, to, to see whether or not you thought that was kind of too simplistic a reading do you think that's? Do you think there was a lot more going on in America at that point that helped the Beatles kind of launch? Well, well, there's a lot of questions kind of embedded in that question. I, well, I'll take the last part first because okay. I don't know that we're going to go too deeply into that. But I think that, um, like the first chapter of my book is what I call setting the stage. I think that there were a lot of sort of seeds planted during the Kennedy era okay. that um, sprouted because of the presence of the Beatles on the cultural and political and artistic scene. Um, so there's that. But in terms of the, you know, this, this notion that the Beatles cheered up America, I think, I think that it's a little, I think there is a connection. Obviously, these are, this is a historical accident that these mm. things happened as they did. Um, the Sullivan broadcast was 79 days after the Kennedy assassination. So, you know, in the sweep of history, they were in some sense almost simultaneous, right? I mean, but at the time, of course, um, you know, living through it, um, you know, those 79 days, I I see them as kind of like a corridor between the Kennedy 60s, you know, which is like, you know, has a certain vibe, certain feel to it and then and the Beatles 60s which is like a whole different thing but I think the, the, the thing with what I call the Kennedy rebound theory of Beatlemania um, I, I think the connection there is a, a connection there in that Kennedy first of all Kennedy um, when he was 27 years younger than Eisenhower so when he took over there was this sense of especially for the post-war generation this sense of the future and the space age and, you know, this kind of forward looking to the future of, you know, a a better world. And Kennedy, you know, established the Peace Corps and, you know, which he talked about harnessing the power of youth for, you know, peace and all this kind of thing. And so there was, and then LBJ gets in and he's only nine years older than Kennedy, but he just looks old and he's, Mm. you know, he's just, again, a different vibe. So where the connection is, is that baby boomer, I mean, I was, when Kennedy, I was only seven at the time. So I can't, I mean, I understood what happened. I can't, you know, but for people who are a little older, um, you know, there was this sense of this youthful optimism was taken away, Mm. you know, this handsome, uh, Hollywood-esque, you know, um, erudite president who enjoyed the arts and and called himself a citizen of the world, which was is very Beatlesque. So, so there was, so that was gone suddenly, and it was quite shocking. And so then, seventy-nine days later, you have um, the Beatles just appear in our lives in this kind of abrupt 
fashion and they are citizens of the world and mm. they're handsome and they're have that cool style and so there is this sense of oh now this okay and and they were um they i think they did cheer people up i think the press also um I mean, loved writing about the Beatles, of course. Mm. And I think that there was a, you know, that they were also um, diverted in a nice way from all the sort of the sadness and the shock. I mean, now, of course, you know, we're sort of, we were quite innocent then compared to now. And mm. so that, it, that the president was shot, that doesn't happen in America. You know? And then, of course, two days later, we see... Um, Oswald shot live on TV. And so it was a really tumultuous kind of sort of scary time, you know, and then so the Beatles come and it's like, oh, okay. <laughs> so, so I think that, I think that it's, I think it's too simplistic to simply say, oh, they cheered us up. But there is an element, I think, for young people, for baby boomers of this sense of that Kennedy had begun something, some youth orientation in the culture, some focus on youth and the concerns of youth. Mm. And they carried and they they carried that through when they came. I sometimes refer to it as the new new frontier, where you know <laughs> Kennedy talked about the new frontier. Okay. They were kind of a, a new new frontier. It's fascinating. It's a lot I haven't I've never thought about in that answer. Um, thank you. So if we could drill down a little bit on that Ed Sullivan uh, performance I watched it last night in in preparation for doing this uh, the that initial one the first performance and it's still just as thrilling you know I mean I we all had our own us kind of gen, later generation Beatle fans had our own version of watching that for the first time which can't compare with everyone that watched it live but it, yeah it's it's still just as thrilling now, I was wondering what sense you got from uh, the people that you interviewed did you get a sense of what it was about that particular performance that made it so special. I mean, obviously it was the first time that they were live on, on TV, but right. was there something that everyone kind of shared that everyone mentioned uh, that they got from just sitting down in front of, of the TV that evening and watching these four guys? Well, I mean, th there was this excitement, okay. you know, there was this, we had not seen people that looked like this before. I mean, as, as, quaint as it might you know like the hair the suits mm. all of it it's 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 you know when i talk about the book you know to young people that they, they can't understand what the big deal was about the hair like the way your hair is right now was <laughs> is longer right i mean in other words they were so visually compelling right i mean they, they could have come from another planet and they did i mean we you know part of the lore and mythology they came from this place called Liverpool and then there, there was everything about them was so different and so compelling and so exciting and fun there was this element of fun and again the youthfulness but they were wearing suits and ties so they were like kids but not kids in fact one of the things I asked uh, people I interviewed was did you see the Beatles as as kids or as adults and it's mm. like they were in this kind of in-between place because like they dressed kind of as initially at first sort of like grown-ups would dress but they were obviously so uh, again the words often used exuberant you know the, the the um and they communicated to their audience at, you know to people watching at home but um a kind of the word that's often used is permission mm. right that there was something about 
the way they looked at each other, the way they non-verbally communicated with each other, the way they looked out at the audience, the, the, the music itself, the, the, the shaking of the head at the woo and all that, that it was like, wow, this, this is literally, as the album was soon to come out was titled, Something New. Mm. Um, this was different. And, you know, the fact that people so many years later remember in vivid detail where they were sitting, who was sitting where in the room, you know, what they had for dinner, they, or they had just come out of the shower, their hair was still wet, it was Sunday night. And you have to remember too, watching Ed Sullivan on Sunday night was, um, a, it was a ritual. It was, okay. a, it was a family ritual. And of course there were three TV stations. So, you know, like you watched Ed Sullivan. And, and so it was, so not only did kids watch, obviously they, they watched with their families. And it was, it was a national event. And the fact that people remember it so vividly really speaks to the way, you know, the, the level of emotional, um, I don't want to say agitation sounds negative, but the, they were really tuned in. In other words, you store memory, what are called flashbulb memories are stored um, in the brain when there's a certain kind of activate, emotional activation. And that's what was happening. I mean, they were, they just lit us up. And in fact, you know, the, one of the ways that people, fans often talk about it is like this, the scene in The Wizard of Oz, right. where Dorothy opens the door and suddenly everything is in color. You know, yeah. that's how people talk about it. And of course, the next day at school, it's all anybody ever talked about. And, and all the boys who had been combing their hair back in the high pompadour were suddenly combing it forward. So there was this kind of, something happened like this you know this thing happened and it was quite thrilling and yeah I mean everything about them it was kind of like a big bang really not only in terms of Beatles fandom but also just culturally I think we should um it's, it's difficult I suppose one thing that I really got from your book that I, I, I didn't get from from other books and maybe from from just you know, being aware of the Beatles was the sense of importance that that moment had for that that whole country. You know, George says that famous thing in the anthology that there was like the lowest recorded crime rate for that fifteen minutes in the in the right. US. Even the criminals were like stop them and 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 check them out. So after the explosion of Hard Days, um, of sorry, of Ed Sullivan, and of course they do it another two another two shows, don't they? So. Right. It it, it, it it cleverly kind of maintains that mania for the for the following Sunday evening. Yeah, the, the following two. So there were three in a row. Yeah, yeah. And so it, it yeah. it's kind of a triple header almost, isn't it? You know, it, it, it's exactly. it, it's it, it's clever. The next thing that happens globally, uh, obviously that that you talk about in the book, is the release of a Hard Day's Night, um, which of course they'd arranged to film before this explosion in the US happened. Again, just another happy accident that the perfect thing for everyone are having fallen in love with them on Ed Sullivan was you could go and see him in the cinema. So if we could talk a little bit about Hard Day's Night, uh, some of the people that you speak to in the book, they say that they saw the film like 15 times, you know, it was, oh, yeah. it yeah. was just a, a fascinating thing. I, I was curious to just ask what sense you got from the people that you interviewed of the impact of Hard Day's Night. Was it what they were expecting? You know, did, did it take them, you know, on a different journey to Ed Sullivan? And the other thing that I got slightly from, from this was that it seemed to have a bit more of an impact on men 
David Crosby tells that story where he went to see Hard Day's Night and he came out of the cinema and swung around the lamppost because he knew that was what he wanted to do with the rest of his right. life. Um, yeah, and I think uh, Roger McGuinn has a story like that. There's a lot, a lot of um, men of that age yeah. um, have similar stories. I, I mean, Hard Day's Night um, came out six months after Sullivan, it was really, you know, I heard it was kind of a booster shot. I mean, not that Beatlemania was waning in any way, but that, you know, it really gave it, uh, you know, a more, even more buoyancy. So I think that, uh, I mean, male and female fans were affected by it in different ways. I mean, it's okay. true that, um, and this is true for the phenomenon as a whole, and that at that time, and if you look at the history of rock music, you can see that this is true, that girls did not think about starting bands for the most part. There are exceptions, obviously notable exceptions, but mm. you know, one of the things that's often said is boys wanted to be them. Girls wanted to be with them. Mm. And you know, it, it's a little bit more nuanced than that. But I, I think what a hard day's night did was that it really portrayed them as superheroes because they, you know, larger than like, we got to know each of them. So they became four separate personalities that we really got to know. Um, you know, and of course, over the years, people say, well, is that really who they were? Or, you know, this is the, the media sort of, you know, uh, frame them as different for different personalities, whatever. But it, it's, I don't know, it seems pretty authentic to me in retrospect. And certainly at the time, they were not actors. That's who they were, you know, so that that charisma that drips off the screen. But when I, I call them superheroes, because the, the big takeaway there was that they were smarter, wiser, more self-possessed, more competent than any of the adults around them, you know? And you have these weird scenes where they're being told to like sit there and write your fan mail as if they were being scolded by a teacher. And it's just so ridiculous, you know? So um, Hard Day's Night, uh, you know, fans, I don't know that fans had particular expectations, okay. but they they loved it. They loved it, you know. It, it, and as you say, I mean, many um, saw it multiple, multiple times. Sat in the theater, you know. In those days, you could go to the movie theater and sit there all day. They didn't throw you out, <laughs> and you could just sit there and watch it over and over. But what was particularly important about it too is that the um, the press loved it, and they did have pretty necessarily low expectations, but really no particular expectations. But the, the, the movie critics loved it and they almost had to like make excuses. Like, I don't know why, you know, then there was, they, they were sort of, they sheepishly admitted that they loved it. Right. And this really raised the Beatles um, cultural clout in, in a lot of ways because they started press started taking them a little bit more seriously at that point because the film was so delightful and compared them to the Marx Brothers and all this. And actually the word delight is, is important because just like at the press conference, you know, when they, I'm, I'm sure you're aware of the at JFK airport, how, you know, they exceeded expectations many times in those early days at the airport they weren't you know they were articulate they were funny they were able to banter with the press 
Okay, so yeah, we're gonna, you know, so the press kind of made this decision to sort of like them and, and enjoy them. And then this movie comes out and, and it was like, wow, this is, this is pretty good. And it was kind of artful, artfully done, um, black and white. And, and it was, it, it elevated them as artists, um, as, well, you know, that might not be quite right, but it, it elevated, it, it made them more important. Mm. And not, and you know, while fans may not really have cared what movie critics thought, they were still uh, aware of the fact that the Beatles were very important. Like that's the thing. Like they, 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 they were deemed important. And so, if you're a young fan, this empowered you because you were part of this whole thing that was happening. It was like this invasion I, what you want to call it but in other words you 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 it gave you as a young person of age 10 or 11 like cultural clout because you could discuss this with your parents or your teachers or your neighbors and it was all they were all anybody talked about i mean the, the experience i mean as i'm thinking about this now the other motivation for writing the book was that i wanted to capture what those days were like like the the, the real Beatlemania days, because it, it's, it was, it's hard to imagine, really, if you were not there. It, and I, so I wanted to try to um, capture that, that this, this frenzy, this, it's, uh, there, I, I hate to say this, because I dis- detest him so much, but the domination of the media was really unprecedented until you know who and <laughs> you yeah. you know really i mean this kind of like it's all anybody was they're all anybody was talking about mm. um so yeah so so a hard day's night the all, the other thing about a hard day's night was that what was so appealing about them is that they came off as kind of rebellious and anti-authority anti-establishment but they didn't do it in a violent or, you know, juvenile delinquent sort of way, you know, there was, they they did it through their sheer wit, charm, charisma, intelligence. And so they were a different kind of male figure, you know, they they presented a different kind of masculinity, which came through in um, A Hard Day's Night. Yes, fascinating. I was just thinking about you know, previous kind of pop films, obviously the obvious comparison is Elvis. Um, if you look at some of those Elvis films, some of which are great, the early ones in a different way, you know, it, it's unlike anything like that. Obviously in the UK, we have our Cliff Richard is the kind of equivalent. I don't know what Cliff's impact in the States was. Um, Nothing. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I'm not surprised. Um, yeah. It's just, it's, it's a world away, isn't it? It's, you know, the, the black and white, the, you know, it's, it's, it's sort of, you know, it's quite bleak in, in certain respect. You, Ringo wandering down the, the towpath, yeah. defeated. You know, he's, he's depressed at that point. He's not, you know, he's, he's quite low. You know, he's started to walk away from the band because they're not appreciating him. So, right. Paul's, you know, so Paul's grandfather has kind of, you know, convinced him. Um, you know, there's a, there's, a lot to, there's a lot going on in that film. There is a lot going on. And, you know, I... I have lost count at this point how many times I've, I've watched it, but yeah. you always spot something new every time. Um, but yeah, it was a, it was a really, there was, a, there was a lot going on in that. And of course, Ringo, you know, looking at all the Ringo was really the star. Yeah. 
obviously in in help also and um yellow submarine you know he starts he's intros yellow submarine so yeah yeah but but hard day's night was it was a big deal it was a very big deal um you know again because the whole the notion of jukebox musicals as you were saying was a thing mm. but and um i guess andrew saris writing the village voice famously said it was the citizen cane of jukebox musicals and that it was that but it was so much more than that moving on from hard days night the next kind of thing chronologically that happens is the that first US tour, they undertake obviously the initial visit. They had played a, a, a show and obviously done Sullivan. But that, that first tour comes in in '64, and you know, you, you again, you obviously spoke to people that were lucky enough to to go along and watch. I was curious what again, what kind of sense you got from people of what that was like, you know, going and and, and watching the Beatles play live on that first US tour. Was there a a kind of an agreed view of, of, of that experience that you got from all the people that you spoke to, or was it something that everyone drew something different, something wonderful, different from, from going to see them live? Well, everybody who has seen them live either on that tour or subsequent tours, um, you know, talks about it as the high point of their life. I mean, you know, they might qualify and say, well, except for meeting my wife and having my kids, you know, in other words, it, it was, and it's really, a, you, having seen the Beatles live, you're in kind of an elite club globally because um, somewhere between two and maybe two and a half million people saw them live ever during those years. So that's okay. really, you know, when you think about the fan base, that's a very tiny fraction. So it's a very elite club and people, who have seen them live. I mean, they talk about it as if it were yesterday with, with that same kind of enthusiasm and passion and thrill. It just completely thrilled. It, you know, again, if you think about how, I say big they were, sounds sort of doesn't capture it, but like they were everywhere. They, you know, they're all anybody was talking about, all everybody was thinking about. So that you got to be in an arena <laughs> or, a, or a space, even a big space like an arena with them, with other fans was just so thrilling. Mm. And, you know, the music was obviously not the main thing. I mean, no. um, it's funny. Sometimes I, I can talk about the Beatles for hours and never mention the music, but I, I won't do that this time. But, um, but it's, I mean, you know, people, oh, I couldn't hear the music, whatever, girls were screaming. But it, it was an event. It was a happening. You know, it was a happening. And again, like people who experienced, particularly Shay in 65, but, but any live event, you know, each one has its, you know, unique qualities, you know, particular memories with, you know, personal memories about, you know, parents dropping them off or trying to sneak into the hotel. I mean, there are all these kind of other things that happen, but seeing them live, you know, people who had that opportunity still talk about it as, as a high point in their lives. Just as an aside, I'm curious to, to find out what you thought of the eight days a week film, the Ron Howard film that, that came out a few years ago. Obviously the aim of that was to capture a little bit of, what it was like to see the Beatles live and the story of, of the Beatles playing live. You were in a position, obviously, that in quite a, a privileged position in the sense that you spoke to many people that, that saw them. Did, were you impressed with that? Do you think they, they captured that at all in that film? 
I think they did. I mean, it, it was very uh, nostalgic for me because I remember, you know, I, they were all, they had a lot of uh, people in that film were wearing the World's Fair hats because okay. the World's Fair and Shea Stadium was actually built. It was all kind of part of this whole thing. And I live in Queens. So it was, I, at the time, I don't know anymore, but it was kind of, so it was just, I just got a kick out of seeing what people looked like then okay. again. And the, and, but I mean, if you want me to comment on the film itself, I mean, it was okay. Yeah. I mean, I, I think it was a Ron Howard vanity project because like many of our generation, he wants to have, you know, how, how does one get proximity to them? And if you're yeah. Ron Howard or, Tom Hanks or certain people, you can do that. Um, but yeah, I mean, it was okay. I mean, I, I mean, I, I, I don't think it was the best documentary ever made about no, that. No. Um, I was just curious. I thought it did have its strengths. Um, it did. No, I, I definitely enjoyed watching it. I mean, it was it was well put together, um, and mm. the, certainly the the joy. I mean, that's the thing. The, the word that's often used in talking about the Beatles, whether it's about the music or or the the whole idea them as a presence in your life. You know, the word joy comes up a lot. And I, would, I will say that that film did a good job of capturing that joy. Moving through the years now, I want to talk a little bit about uh, 65 and, and 66. Obviously, the Beatles music rapidly starts to, to change over the course of this, this period. Um, and the image starts to change as you get into 66. You know, we're not we're not in full hippie gear yet, but we're getting that way. You know, the the photos are are testament to that. I, I, I was keen to find out whether or not you got a sense from the people that you spoke to about whether or not they would stick with the Beatles. Uh, you know, during this period, was there any loyalty kind of issues? Did they go? They start to kind of go a bit too far for people. Um, and the other thing that, of course, that I'm I'm interested to find out about is sixty six the monkeys kind of come along, um, uh, which are, you know, as we know, a kind of proto Beatles. What impact did, did they have across the a, a country as a whole and kind of in comparison to the Beatles? Did people start to jump ship a little bit at, at that point and, and kind of board the monkeys train? There was some of that. I mean, fans describe growing up with the Beatles and having them as a presence in their lives as, as like a journey. Um, and so some of that, or, or they, they might describe it as when they started to, when the music changed. And of course this has to do with drugs. I mean, people, this is you know, often not mentioned, oh, by the way, you know, the music changed for lots of reasons. They were growing as artists and people and musicians and all that, but there was also drugs. So, um, yeah, so they, so as the music became less accessible, I suppose you could say, with uh, Revolver, there were fans, particularly younger ones, but not only younger ones, older ones as well, who like, they didn't like it. It didn't turn them on, as it were. Yeah. So, um, but, you know, the monkeys were engineered to grab those fans who, who fell off, who, who quit the journey for a while or got off the Beatle bus, as some of them describe it. One fan I, rem I remember I interviewed in the book, he talked about Revolver and, you know, couldn't make heads or tails out of like Love You Too and, and mm. Tomorrow Never Knows. And it was the, it's the last song on the album. Like, that's what they left me with. Like, I don't, yeah, I don't like this, whatever. Um, so yeah, so the monkeys were, were there to fill that gap. But the thing about the monkeys 
that I think is, is really important to remember is that, you know, you know, my approach to all of this is, again, getting back to changed everything. Well, what does that mean? How did they change everything? Okay, so they're presenting all these ideas and ways of thinking and uh, modeling new ways of being a man and male friendship and, and uh, sort of this kind of freedom, this permissiveness and, and uh, you know, grown-ups are kind of stupid sometimes as we, you know, and, and all that. So um, the monkeys carried those messages through, broad brushing it and calling these countercultural messages. The monkeys embodied all of that um, in, in their style, in their you know, the music, perhaps not so much, although Pleasant Valley Sunday written by Carol King is a brilliantly captures a lot of the ennui of that generation and the kind of sense of something's missing uh, in our lives. But um, yeah, so the monkeys, you know, they appeal to a younger demographic, certainly, but they, but the countercultural messaging was very much front and center with the monkeys as well. Talking about the counterculture, my next question is to move on to the following year. Um, it's amazing when you think how quickly all this happened, you know, three years on from, from Ed Sullivan, the summer of love happens and Sergeant Pepper happens. Similar questions around that. Did you get a sense from, again, from the people that you spoke to that Sergeant Pepper and all we need is love, which I think we should, you know, definitely talk about um, that, that particular performance. Did that have a similar impact on people that Ed Sullivan had, you know, it, again, it's, it's a moment, isn't it? It's a time. It, it, it's, it, it's a very similar thing. You know, was that something that is kind of comparable? Did that have as much of a lasting impact on, on Beatle fans? Well, it was certainly a big moment, not quite the same as the Sullivan moment. I don't think because we already knew them at mm. that point. And in fact, uh, we were seeing, depending on how you want to define it, a second or perhaps third iteration of them by um, the summer of, by summer of love 67. Um, but Sergeant Pepper was very much a big deal. Um, and yeah, to, to think about that, it was only three years later is, is pretty amazing. But again, like some people did not necessarily like Sergeant Pepper so much, or it was too much, or it wasn't danceable. You know, part of the, uh, joy of the early Beatles was this was the music the, these little these two and a half three minute bursts of exuberant energy that gets into your synapses and and dancing with friends and moving to the music was a big part of that early joy particularly for young fans and so that was not there with Sergeant Pepper not not so much with Revolver either but um, not with, you know, so Sgt. Pepper was a different kind of thing. And I think that some fans, for whatever reason, uh, the same ones who didn't enjoy Revolver, um, just weren't into it. Um, they couldn't get through it. I mean, um, I wrote a piece, Reese, that's going to come out about um, Beatles fandom as a sort of secular religion. And one of the points that I make is this this notion of interest, like the I, that this research... Um, new research on the brain and emotion is suggesting that interest itself is kind of an emotion. So if something is accessible 
and novel and you know new that it, it creates interest but if it doesn't feel accessible if it doesn't feel comprehensible even though it's new you don't like it and you know and so the beatles you know by this point by revolver by sergeant pepper there was some work required for to to get what was coming you know in other words to really understand this and some uh, for whatever reason just didn't want to do that work it didn't it didn't grab them for whatever reason, it seemed too esoteric, too far out. I mean, particularly uh, fans have very vivid memories of Within You Without You. Whether mm -hmm. they liked it or not, uh, it stuck, it, it stood out as mem very memorable. And it was, you know, one young fan, well, he's about 11 or 12, I think, said, you know, like, it, it, there was something about that song. It was like going into church. You had to pay attention, and it was, it, and it was somehow almost scary. But there was this trust established, right? So, in other words, this, this quote was something like, "Well, based on my prior experience with them, I figured it would be okay, even though it seemed a little scary." And that I think during the Beatlemania years, the Beatles sort of established trust. You know, in other words, they, we came to love them during all that and trust them. And, and so you trusted them. And so you did that extra work required for Revolver or the extra work required for Sgt. Pepper. So you kind of knew, you didn't give up on them easily, you know, in other words. And, and of course, the big kids, you know, the Beatles were also consumed in mixed age groups for the most part. So it's like siblings you know so like what do you mean you don't like sergeant pepper mm. oh you, you 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 know and then you would kind of there was some amount of peer pressure too you know like what do you mean you don't like it and and they would discuss it and so you would kind of come to like it if you were a little reluctant at first but it was definitely a big deal i mean the, the radio state you know the djs would say you have to listen to it in its entirety you know so it, it came with instructions you know so this kind of made it more important in a way, um, and of course, you know, the critics said many things about it that, that elevated it as well. Mm. Um, it was pretty audacious if you think about it. It was also, I mean, in many ways, pretentious. You know, a lot of, you know, I mean, I, my feelings about Pepper and a lot of this kind of change, you know, I, I sort of have different impressions about it sometimes, but um, it was a very big deal. I mean, now it's seen as, you know, I mean, I guess Revolver is kind of, roundly considered the best whatever as if we have to choose right you know <laughs> but you know sergeant pepper has its place i mean i i enjoy it i think the remaster was three years ago it's really great and um hmm. i think that in the long sweep of history i believe that within you without you will which is the literally the centerpiece of the album i think will stand up it's a really important song it encapsulates a lot of you know, a lot of what they were about, I think, in a lot of ways. That song's interesting, actually, because, again, slightly of a sidetrack, but we'll get on a little, in, a little, in a short time to kind of the impact of the Beatles individually. Within and Without You is obviously a George song, and I, I kind of get the sense just from kind of the last few years, George's importance in the Beatles is, is, is growing. You know, um, I spoke to Ashley Khan about his book about yeah. George, and he kind of covered that ground really well um and yeah I, I think within you without you is kind of almost the ultimate george song you know obviously uh, something is um 
Here Comes the Sun are more commercially successful and both wonderful pieces of music. Within and without you is, you know, it's an entirely Indian piece. You know, that's something else. It's an entirely Indian piece on a pop record. It's almost the ultimate. It kind of sums up George, I think, in, you know, right down to that laughter at the end. You know, that, that thing of George, George almost preempting everyone to say, okay, you might not like this. I don't care. This is us having a great time. And, and he's in on the joke or they're in on the joke. I don't know. I, I, think, I think it is the ultimate George song. I, I, mean, I, I mean, one could make the case that it's the ultimate Beatles song, which I don't know if we want to get into now. But I, I think that it's a lot of what they were about, which I think becomes more visible with the passage of time and more obvious with the passage of time, I think that it was, I, I don't want to say underappreciated, whatever. I mean, you can appreciate in your moment because we don't have, we can't see things in hindsight in the moment, obviously. But I think that just as um, Here Comes the Sun is apparently like the most downloaded, streamed uh, Beatles song, you know, so I, I think with, within you without you is, is a really important song that encapsulates as just here comes the sun, actually, a lot of what they were about. Mm. But uh, yeah, I don't know. Um, I mean, Sgt. Pepper was definitely a big deal. I mean, the, having the lyrics on the back was also a first. And fans interpreted that as, well, they want us to read this, mm. right? <laughs> they want us to take the time to read along, which we did. And, and so you, it, it allowed you to think about it. They wanted you to think about it. They wanted you to think about a lot of things, but um, they wanted you to think about the words and to, uh, there was something, I don't know, it, there was, it was just, again, part of the specialness, everything they did, like it was this constant, everything was compelling, even if you didn't love it at first, or even if you found it slightly off-putting, you couldn't deny it, you know what I mean? It, it, there was just this, this um, importance about it. Little did they know that it, we'd still be thinking about it all these years later. Um, but, but anyway, so talking about uh, individuals, as we start to a little bit with George there, as we move through into, into 68 uh, and the cracks start to appear in the four-headed monster that, again, just four years earlier, is swept across America. Did you get a sense from, from this period as the Beatles start to divide? Principally, obviously, John and Paul start to, start to divide. Or so we thought at the time, you know, there's, there's more theories and thoughts about that since. Um, did you get a sense from people that by this point, the kind of John and Paul issue was, was prevalent? Did fans immediately kind of lean towards John or Paul during this period? Obviously, you know, in, in that Sullivan period... I suppose their allegiances were a little bit different um, because people were younger for a start. Uh, but at this point, do you think there was more of a sympathy or an affection for, for John or Paul? I don't know. It's, it's hard to say. I mean, I think that, you know, we have to take the whole, the, there was this side show, this other side spectacle that we were all watching, which was John and Yoko, which, you know, so let's say late 68, certainly 69 during the peace campaign. So there was all that happening and then when the breakup happened the the way it was the way we learned about it we were led to believe that paul was the impetus for the breakup 
So I'm not really sure how to answer that as far as where people felt more, I'm just saying, loyalty or whatever. Um, I think there was a perception that, uh, obviously the perception and persists to this day, that Yoko broke up the Beatles, even though the way it played out, it was, you know, because of the legal wranglings and whatever, that, that Paul was, was the one um, who did it. Of course, in retrospect, it seems kind of silly because, like, Paul, the Beatles would, it was up to Paul, they'd still be together, okay? So, you know, he, but as far as alliance, you know, fan allegiances or alliances, I don't know. I mean, early on, this, this notion of picking a favorite was a very big thing, particularly for female fans, um, because female fans, you know, were more sort of like enjoyed sort of focusing on one, whereas male fans were very into the camaraderie. So they didn't want to separate them out, you know? But, uh, and of course, people's favorites evolve over the years. I know in your conversation about George, talking about how people end up at George, and that's absolutely true for me. <laughs> um, but uh, as far as at the breakup period, I don't know. I think whoever was your favorite was your, you know, at that time was your favorite. I mean, at that time, I was, I think I was a Paul person at that point. I mean, the breakup was, people were upset you know, uh, some saw it coming, some didn't, you know, if you were reading Rolling Stone, if you're really tuned in, you know, you maybe had some inkling that there were some issues, but it did seem rather sudden, I guess. And of course, then, you know, right after that, Let It Be comes out and then uh, the record, the film, and then McCartney is released. So my sense of it at the time was that, okay, it ran its course and it was, there's something sad about it, but you know, McCartney was a great album and there was other great music at that point, you know, other artists that, I don't know, and I never, you know, I'm not a huge Beatles solo fan, although here and there I am. But um, I think I think fans were upset because it wasn't so much the music that we would never hear, but rather the, the, the loss of this comforting presence in our lives. I mean, they were with us day in and day out every day for six years you know, as this constant presence that was providing more excitement, enthusiasm, interesting ideas, images, words, music, sounds, like there was nothing else in our lives as interesting. And, and so suddenly that's gone. And I think that that's what fans were reacting to. I was curious to whether or not there was a sadness or an anger at, at them breaking up. Um, but it's interesting what you say there, that it, it wasn't, I suppose to most people, it kind of wasn't a shock. John and Yoko had built this brand exactly. really quickly, you know, straight away they were, you know, things like the bedding, you know, that, that was a long way from a Beatle project. And George is obviously associated with Ravi Shankar and starts to do more things in that area. Um, and then as soon as the solo albums, you know, as soon as things like, give, even though Give Peace a Chance is a Lennon-McCartney credit, you know, people must have realised that that was, that was a long, you know, the Beatles weren't involved in that. So it as I say, it must have been quite expected, um, which is uh, which is something, because you, you kind of, from, from my perspective, reading about it growing up, it was kind of a shock, you know, and there was anger and people in the streets were angry. Um, but I don't think that's how it was at all, was it really? Well, I'm sure there, I think there were people that were, were angry. Um, I think sadness probably captures it more than anger. I mean, I have a friend who he's... Um, who remembers his sister, who's around my age, he's much younger, but I rem- he remembers his sister crying and didn't, you know, didn't understand why she was crying. 
you know, so, so people were upset, but it was like they were so much a part of the fabric and texture of our daily lives that the idea that there wasn't going to be, that that wasn't going to be the case anymore and that was, and we weren't waiting for a new single or a new record. Mm-hmm. Um, there was something very sad about that. It was like, I mean, I, I mean, one of the, the things that, that writing about this yesterday is that like the relationship between fans and the Beatles was really, and remains historically unprecedented. So how do you describe that feeling? Okay, well, this is over now. Oh my God, really? Wow. Like, you know, and we, we had come to, I don't want to say take them for granted because that implies we didn't appreciate them, but we had, they were there. They were always there. They were always going to be there. And then suddenly they weren't. So I, I think there was some sadness about it. And I think older fans, again, it depends on how cute in you were to what you, you know, what rock press you read, which at that point there was a rock press. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and of course the delays with the, let it be and get back and all. I mean, there was this sense that something, you know, everything wasn't wonderful in Beatle world. Yeah. But yeah, it was kind of, I mean, I remember it. it. It was, it was, you know, it was, a, it was a thing, you know, it was, it was part of the experience of being a Beatle fan. Mm-hmm. They don't exist anymore. <laughs> I was interested to find out what you got from the experience of, of writing the book. Did you, did your mind change about something? Did you, you strike me as someone that doesn't have too many preconceived notions, but if you had any, did that change by the time you spoke to all these people? And did you get any hint as to why all these years later, we're still talking about them? Well, I mean, I, th- I mean, I think that, I think that my book really explains it in a way because, and again, it, it's this, this constant joyful presence for six years, opened your ears to music, gave you things to talk about with your friends, to social, you know, to, to explore um, consciousness, to think about travel. To, I mean, just, they, they were such a rich experience in, in so many ways. And so, and again, that they were such a presence not only in your life but in your friends lives the culture like you know every time they did anything that was in the newspaper and and so why after all these years they're still so important like why wouldn't they be is really the question seriously because i kind of related to the idea that you know people have pictures of the beatles in their homes or their offices it's like it's no different than if you had pictures of family members because these are people who were really important to you and enriched your life in a way that was, I mean, mysterious. And I mean, again, it's like, how do you describe this relationship? That were they teachers, mentors, performers, artists, clowns, you know, whatever. Like, the, you know, somebody said, well, they were sort of like big brothers. They were like uncles. They were like, you know, uh, the big kids who taught you stuff, you know, like, like, how do you describe what they were, you know? And so why we're still, uh, you know, particularly first generation fans are still so um, enamored with them. I mean, I, I mean, that's kind of what I set out to, you know, one of the things I set out to, to explore. And I, and I think it really does have to do with how old we were when they came into our lives. Like I was seven uh, when I watched Ed Sullivan, and I was 14 when they broke up, 
Okay, those are really critical formative years of development. Okay, but what maybe you were um, 15 when you saw them on Sullivan, and then you were uh, 21 or whatever when they broke up. Those are also critical years of development. So the, the, the reason that, you know, if you think about it globally, I mean, we've been talking about the U.S. because my book focuses on the U.S., but in many ways, these, the dynamic was global, particularly in the English-speaking world. So when you think about the huge swath of the population, that had this experience for six years, you know, where there was like nothing else in your life that was as um, rich, as, as reliably joyful, you know, like how would you, I mean, it would be more, I mean, the, the question like, how could you not still be hung up on Now people might say, oh, it's just, oh, I was a kid then, whatever, it doesn't mean anything to me anymore, whatever. Yeah, you know, there are people who, who are, you know, casual about it like that. But for those of us that were really uh, caught up in it, as millions and millions were, and many actually don't even want to admit it um, for a variety of reasons, but uh, it was a huge thing. And so you're not going, it's not something that you're going, like growing up with the Beatles was a, an experience that this generation had, and I would say this generation, really we're talking about across it, 15, 18, depending on how you want to define baby mm. boomers. You talk about like sort of the post-war generation globally. This is a lot of people. These, this was, you know, all these countries, this was the biggest, this was the post-war baby boom. So you have all these young people across the globe tuned into this for, for all, you know, six, seven years, um, nonstop. That's huge. I mean, that is a relationship that really, um, it, it's, it really defies, just, uh, it defies description in a way. It was, it was historically unique. And if you, I mean, if, never before in history, really, if you, if you think about the demographics and the communication technologies of the, of the day, it was historically unprecedented that one group of people would be communicating to so many other young, you know, young people, particularly because they're impressionable, at the same time for six years. You know, uh, it's, it's really kind of mind-boggling. I mean, if you go back to, uh, you know, through human history, this is absolutely unprecedented. Mm. You know, we can talk about, you know, spiritual leaders and whatnot. I mean, they did not have the audience that the Beatles had. And the, also the, the audience, an audience that was ready to hear this, uh, to receive this because of, you know, the, the post-war climate of things are going to be better in the future and and uh, you know in the US the economy was booming and and you know there was this this throughout the 60s the great society and all this. so uh, there was this kind of trajectory of optimism and 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 uh, that human beings were somehow uh, evolving before our very eyes, you know, and the age of a craze, all this kind of stuff. So, so there was this, so, so many people were impacted by this. And 
you know, it, it's really quite amazing. And to have lived through it, I've, you know, I mean, many people who have lived through it describe it as like a, like a blessing to have experienced this. And, and I think that's why so many people, particularly in the U.S., again, of, of my generation who grew up as Beatle fans are so horrified by the current moment because it's so different. And we could never have imagined that we'd be here you know, after all the, um, this feeling of, um, you know, optimism that, that was so much a part of them and those times. We need them now more than ever, don't oh, we? Absolutely, you know? absolutely. Yeah. Um, in, in, in the UK, we're having our own kind of moments. So I know a lot of us are taking a lot of strength from uh, the Beatles at the moment. So thank goodness for that. That's, that's, that's all I can say. Um, well, uh, Candid, this has been a fascinating hour and seven minutes that I've spent with you. <laughs> um, uh, it's, uh, it's been a, a, a really interesting insight into, into Beatles. Um, it's a book that I think it's quite a, I got a real sense of emotion from reading it. I think it's, you know, it is a journey that, that you and, you know, people of your generation undertook. And I think your book captures it, you know, beautifully um so i just well, want to you. that's okay thank you uh, so much for your time thank you take care